this is new to me, although I, I went to Mag and David. In my time, we never had events like this. We used to get together, they used to give us fish sticks. Yeah. Now they're giving out pizza, ice cream, and all that stuff. the parent body, which is probably the most important body that's here tonight, the parents of our students. And they said, the Rabbi, maybe you could speak to them for a few minutes, not too long, on uh, raising children. I said that I'm sorry that I don't, I don't speak about that. That's not one of my topics. That it can't be. It's such an important topic. You don't speak about raising children. It's not in your repertoire of, uh, of talks. I said, the truth of the matter is, I'm doing this for 30, 35 years. I don't think I ever spoke about raising children. They said, well, this is, uh, you're delinquent. This is a topic that every parent needs to talk about. If you're not talking about raising children, then what are you talking about? I said, well, I talk about something more important, and that's raising parents. Now... You see, because when we come and talk about raising children, the parents love it. Oh, yeah, we're going to give them this, we're going to that. And then you come and say, no, 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 I don't care about the children. We're coming to talk to the parents to raise you. And now it starts to become uncomfortable for the parents. Because we're telling the children, you have to do nothing. It's not about you, it's about your parents. If the parents can figure out how to raise themselves, then I think automatically the children, through osmosis, automatically will learn the proper behavior and proper conduct. So we shouldn't spend too much time worrying about the children. We have to be worrying about our parents. So no disrespect. I'm a parent as well, and I'm talking to myself. I think the timing is appropriate. Uh, Rabbi Saban opened up talking about the upcoming fast day. And there's an old story that they tell regarding Tisha B'Av. I know you heard it, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. But that's the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Now don't tune out, because I know you know the story. And I want to say something novel on the story. Because the Gemara says it was because of this episode that brought to the destruction. So it's important to know the story, what happened. I'm going to tell you why this story caused the destruction of God's house. Gemara says there was Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And there was a fellow making a wedding. And his friend was Kamsa and his enemy was Bar Kamsa. And they invited the wrong guy to the wedding. Instead of inviting Kamsa, they invited Bar Kamsa. He shows up. I don't know why he showed up, but he showed up. And all of a sudden, the guy says, what is he doing here? The security guy let him in. He said, throw him out. And he says, do me a favor. Don't embarrass me. I'm here already. Let me stay. I'll pay for whatever I'm eating for. I don't need your $5 or $20 a plate. Get lost. Please, I'll pay for half the wedding. No, I'll pay for the whole wedding. They embarrassed the guy. They threw him out. Nobody said anything. Eventually, instead of going home and just forgetting about it, he takes a direct flight to Rome. He goes to the Caesar. He badmouths the Jewish people. He puts us in a bad light. Before you know it, the Caesar turned against us. Not long after that, they burnt the temple. And they blame it on this guy, Bar Kamsa. Now, feel bad for the guy. got embarrassed. They kicked him out of a wedding. But, I mean, we've been embarrassed before. That doesn't mean you go to Washington, D.C., and go to the president and start bad-mouthing the Jews to have them destroy the temple. So he's a bad guy, Bar Kamsa. But there's a interesting statement in the Gemara. The Gemara says the temple was destroyed because of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Now, I know what Bar Kamsa did, but what did Kamsa do? I mean, that poor guy, 
He didn't go to the wedding, Hazid. He was the friend. He didn't get an invitation. He was home. He did nothing. You want to blame the destruction? Put the onus on the man who caused it all. Barkamsa. So why does the Gemara say, oh, Akamsa Ubarkamsa? What did Kamsa do? Hold on to your seats. You know who Kamsa was? Well, if you know Aramaic, what does Bar Kamsa mean? Very good. Bar Kamsa was the son of Kamsa. That means Kamsa was a father and Bar Kamsa was the son. This was a father and a son. And you know what the Torah is telling us? It wasn't only Bar Kamsa's fault that this happened. Because if there's a guy in the world called Bar Kamsa and he's such a villain, and this guy has such hatred, and this guy has such resent to go be a Moser on the people, you know whose fault it is? It's his father's fault. This was an epic failure in parenting. And that's why the Gemara says, A Kamsa u Bar Kamsa, the Gemara puts the onus first on Kamsa, second on Bar Kamsa. If Bar Kamsa was able to degenerate to such a low level, it's because he had a delinquent father. Bar Kamsa's failure is the failure of Kamsa. Av Ubeno. And that's what destroyed God's house. And I'm sorry to tell you, bad parenting is destroying homes throughout our illustrious community. Not bad children, but delinquent parenting. No disrespect to the members here, you showed up tonight. Rabbi always gives rebuke to the people who showed up. <laughs> and you're saying, what are you yelling at me for? You're the guys who didn't come over here. Well, I can't go knocking on doors, so you let them know. But no disrespect to the people that came. You're the good people. But the good people get punished for the bad people. My apologies. Akamsa ubar kamsa. So, I'd like to go to the first mitzvah in the Torah. The first mitzvah in the Torah is, as you know, Peru urvu. And Peru Urvu, the way they told it to us in school, I probably learned to the Mag and David, Peru Urvu, be fruitful and multiply. Now, to me that sounds like the same thing, just saying it in a different way. Semantics, be fruitful and multiply. Peru Urvu, it's the same thing twice. I have to accept that there must be a difference between the word Peru and Urvu. Because if it was the same thing, the Torah could just have said, Either Peru or Urvu. Why does it say both words? Ladies and gentlemen, what is the difference between the Peru and the Urvu? I will introduce to you what Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch said to explain it. It is indeed brilliant. He says Peru means to be fruitful. By the way, the word fruit actually has its origins in Hebrew. There's a lot of English words that come from the Hebrew language. Fruit is ferut. Ferut is perot. Same letters, same origin. So be fruitful. Peru, have children. So what is urvu? Multiply. But what does he mean multiply? Doesn't necessarily mean have 11 children. Now my great-grandmother and many of your great-grandmothers, they had 11 children today. It's not maybe so, so, so practical. But urvu could mean have many. Multiply, as many as you can. But Rabbi Hirsch says no. Multiply means... If you have values, and you have certain things that are important to you, like you all do, 
we have Safa, we have Shabbat, we have holidays, we have Kashrut, we have love of uh, family. There's certain values that our community has, and especially our Magad David family has. We cherish education, we cherish respect, derecheretz, conduct. All these things are important to us as parents. Now, the goal of a parent is to multiply. Multiply what? Multiply yourselves through your children. That means at the end of 120 years, you'd hope that somebody might come and tell your child, you're a chip off the old block. You remind me of your mother, not only by looks. You remind me of your father. Your father did the same thing when you, I remember. Your mother used to do the same item. Then you've succeeded to multiply. Multiply who? You multiply yourself. Now there's more than... Rabbi Mansour. Now you have six of them running around. Now, some people will say that's a disaster. <laughs> but assuming that that's a good thing. But the point is, I say again, Rabbi Hirsch, Peru is be fruitful. Urvu, multiply. Multiply what? Multiply yourself and your values through your children. And uh, I will say that the easy part is Peru. Now, of course, I'm a man. I could say that. I never had any, you know, uh, morning sickness or birth pains or labor. Sandra claimed she had a hard time, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel anything through all the pregnancies. To be she claims that it wasn't so easy. The Peru, relatively, is the easy part. It's the Urvu that's the complicated part. How many times do people in the community text me? Hi, Rabbi. My wife is in labor. Please, could you make a prayer? Oh, my honor. Send me her name. Okay, we open the book, we read it to Helim, and then they send me back a few hours later, Rabbi Mazato, baby boy, you could stop praying. And I always text them back, that was the easy part. <laughs> now you have to start praying, because to have them, anybody can have them, but it's to Urvu. <laughs> That's the hard part. Now to raise these kids and to bring them up, not so easy. The Urvu is invariably harder than the Peru. And I came to talk about tonight the Urvu. Techniques in how to perpetuate our values into our children. The basic theme that I'm going to tell you is as follows. So God comes to us at Har Sinai, and there were many miracles that happened at Har Sinai. Many miracles. One miracle was so uh, complex and so odd that as she writes on this miracle, it's a type of miracle that you can't explain. I can explain the splitting of the sea. Sea split, different lanes, you can understand it conceptually. But there's certain miracles that defy even words. You can't even explain it, it doesn't even enter your brain. What was the miracle? It says when they stood in Har Sinai, Vechol Ha'am, they stood at the foot of Sinai, and when Moses was pontificating the law, it says they didn't hear the law, they saw it. Now, when I'm talking to you, you hear me. Now, you see my body, but you don't see my words. Words don't lend themselves to seeing, words lend themselves to hearing. Word is something that's audible. But at Har Sinai it says, that she says something that we cannot even fathom. 
I don't know what it means. Maybe they saw sound waves. And even if they see sound waves, that doesn't mean anything. What does it mean? I'd like to say a novel interpretation because the Zohar Kadosh writes, God does not make a miracle for no reason. Every miracle has a lesson. So anytime you read about these miracles that happen, it's not just because God wants to show that he can take a rabbit out of a hat. We know that God is can do supernatural things. There's a lesson in every miracle. And I asked, what's the lesson in Bechola Amru Imet My opinion? God's giving us the Torah. Now we know today that anytime you get a, uh, a new uh, type of education or a new type of uh, science, you need a how-to. You need somebody to tell you how to do it. You go on YouTube, they tell you, okay, step one, step two, step three, step four. Now God's giving the Torah to us. And He tells us, this is the law, this is divine, and this is the way you're supposed to live your lives according to this book, and teach it to your children. And we came to God and said, but how to? How do you get this book in the kid's head? How do you get this book in your grandchildren? How do we transfer, transfer this knowledge to it? We need a how-to. So you know what God says? There's two ways of teaching. There's the less effective way, which I'm doing. This is less effective. I'm, I'm sermonizing. In Arabic they say, Haki Balash. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. Talking is very nice. You're hearing me. It'll make an effect. Although some people say, in one ear, out the next. Uh, my goal is to hopefully that it'll stay between the ears for a little longer before it, before it spills out. Because the spoken word has less effect than what you see. If the child sees a model of the behavior that's expected from him, that already makes an indelible impression. Less spoken, a picture speaks a thousand words. And that's why the Torah is coming to say, you know how we teach Torah to our children and values? Let them see it, not let them hear it. If a parent just thinks that a good parent is the one that can give the best sermon and the best musar and the best speech, that's not a parent. The best parent is the one that doesn't have to speak so much, but is able to model every single item that they want from the children. Now that's difficult, because it's very easy for me to tell the kid, make sure you go to learning at night. All the rabbis are there, you got to study. But daddy, what are you doing? Oh, I'm watching the ball game. Uh, and that takes a sacrifice. That takes a sacrifice from parents to hold themselves to the same standard that they want from their children. And our children are clever. They know exactly the inconsistency. And if you think you could trick them, they're more clever than the FBI, the CIA, and <laughs> Scotland Yard put together. They know exactly when we're being genuine and when we're being two-faced. So therefore, it has a reverse effect when we tell our children, don't lie. And then we go into the, uh, and, and, and don't lie. If a father told his kid, we don't lie in this house. I'll tell you a thousand times, we don't lie. We tell the truth. And in the middle of his speech, his wife says, uh, somebody's on the phone. Tell them I'm not home. <laughs> so we don't lie. <laughs> so, and that happens all day long. It happens all day long. One of the members of that community was telling me 
that uh, he's riding in the with his wife in the car, and the kids are in the back, and uh, all of a sudden, like uh, some uh, I don't know, Chinese guy walked by the street, and uh, the, the kid said something. Wow, there's so many Chinese around there. What are those Chinese? So the mother tells the husband, "We're raising racists. What's, what's going on? Raising what kind of kids in this moment?" So the, the fathers, I don't know where where they get this from. This is it's incredible. Where, where, where and they were like both commiserating that it's not good that these children have racist uh, attitude. Anyway, two minutes later, there's another Abed walking down the street, and the father says, "Go back to Africa." <laughs> so the mother says, "They hear exactly what yours." And you have to know that. And they did studies on this. You want to know how much that your children know exactly what you're doing? When the mother's in the, in the kitchen sweeping, right away the little kid picks up a room and they copy. But if you want to see how true this is, get your children a doll and see how they treat the doll. Everything the mother does to that child, the child will do to the doll. Every word that the mother uses, and then you'll be able to see exactly they pick up everything, even the way they put the doll in the bed, and they cover him, and they go like this, and they whisper in the ear, and they kiss him on the foot. They pick up everything, because that's all they know. They know what they see by the parents. The words that they use, the children are the greatest indictment to parents. Because the parents, they try to come to school as if they're Sadiqim. And I tell them, I know the kids already. <laughs> the kids revealed everything already. Unintentionally, I know everything about you. I know that what words you use at home, I know what you do after dinner, I know where you go, I know where you come. How do you know everything? I'm not a prophet. It's all in the kids. The kids are the fingerprint and the blueprint of the parents. So therefore, it's very easy to come along and say, oh, we're going to get those kids. And here we come along, we flip the whole thing over and say, forget about the kids. Don't, don't focus too much on the kids. I think we're spending too much time trying to fix the kids. And that's words instead of fixing ourselves. Let the kids see that arguably it's more difficult to change ourselves. And as we get older, it's hard to teach, you know, new tricks. But that's the responsibility. And I'll give you a perfect example from the Torah. My Rabbi Hacham Baruch Alaba Shalom used to tell us the following story. He probably told it to me in Mag and David, 8th grade, 50 Avenue P, when it was uh, still a Motel 6, now it's uh, <laughs> those days. And the heat probably wasn't working that day. He told us the following. If you look at the beginning of Pirkei Avot, we learned Pirkei Avot in Mag and David, we're going to learn it again this year, we're starting to bring back practical knowledge. Stuff what I'm telling you, I learned in eighth grade. That means it's something still in my pocket, not some esoteric uh, item in the world over there that I'll never use again. Practical stuff that the kids will have in their pocket. But Kavod's going to be taught in the yeshiva. And the rabbi said the following: In the beginning, it says, the beginning mishtayot. The introductory statement says, "Who are Omer? Who are Omer? He used to say. He used to say. I guess each rabbi had their, you know, adages or their pitkamim or their, you know, their statements, their quotes. And Huayahomir means this is something they used to say over and over again. You know, certain rabbis have their, their points that they like to drill, uh, drill home. So when they introduce it, they say, Huayahomir. This was his statement. This was his item. Rabbi Baruch learned it differently. And he gave the following story. He said there was a teacher in the yeshiva. Parent came to the teacher and said, uh, Rab, I got a problem. What's the problem? 
my son is addicted to figs. Now, in our generation, that would be a blessing compared to what the kids are addicted to today. But in those days, fig addiction was a big problem, it seems. So he comes along and he says, well, what do you want me to do? He says, Rabbi, my, 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 my son respects whatever you tell him. Could you just tell him when he comes home from school, one or two figs and had you? So he says, yeah, no problem. Anyway, the kid goes to school that day, comes home from school, the kid goes right to the closet, he polishes off all the case of figs. So the mother says, the rabbi didn't talk to you today? So no, he didn't say anything to me. So I don't believe it. I went to the school, I told them. And then she goes back to the school. She says, Rabbi, I, I came yesterday, uh, you told me. <clears throat> oh yeah, the figs. Sonny boy, come here. You're eating too many figs. One or two and enough. It's okay, Rabbi. So the mother says, I don't understand. You couldn't do that yesterday? He says, no, I couldn't do it yesterday. So why? This is because during lunch, I myself had a case of fix. <laughs> and he wouldn't have listened to me. Today, he saw me pick up the box and put it down. Now I could talk to him. It would have fell on deaf ears yesterday. First, I had to follow it myself. Once I followed it myself, now I'm able to be effective. So Chambaruk learned the Mishnah like this. Hu haya Omer, listen how beautiful. He would learn it like this. Hu haya, period. First, the teacher or the parent must be. After they are, then Omer. Hu haya is going on the parent and the teacher. First, you have to internalize. Hu haya. Once you are, now be Omer. And I have a bigger hadush. Once you are, you don't even have to be Omer. Being Omer is superfluous. It's extra. It'll happen naturally. That's called trickle-down parenting. It just trickles down from the parent and they'll pick up on our anger and they'll pick up how we deal with adversity and they'll pick up how we deal with... They'll pick up every... Attitudes are also given over. So when they see a, a, a parent hear some upsetting news and he pounds the thing on the table, that becomes how we deal with adversity. Or if he hears a parent come along and say, and maintains uh, the same uh, stability. Everything. By the way, why do children get up in the morning when it's raining and they say, oh, what an ugly day. How do children know if it's ugly day when it rains? They don't know the difference. <laughs> Who taught them? Because they heard the mother on the phone in the morning, what an ugly, miserable day. So that's it. You taught the kids when it rains, it's miserable. Now, if it, I'm not saying you have to be Mary Poppins and get on the phone and say, oh, look at that, another beauty. Not a rainy day. All the tomatoes are going to grow now. Unbelievable. But guess what? If you did that, and it'd be raining. Your kids would get up in the morning and say, oh, not a rainy day. Look at that. Two, two lucky days. I hope, it, I hope it rains tomorrow. But again, just to show you how attitudes are handed over to the door. They don't know anything. Whatever you're going to relate to and the way you're going to react to it, that's the way the kids are going to react to it. So really, the onus is on us. I hate to tell you. So they tell me, raise your children. Don't be a favor. You're wasting your time with raising children. You're wasting your time. Because until parents are willing to raise themselves, Really, it's an uphill battle, and you're doing it, you're going backwards. It doesn't start from the children, it starts from the parents. I'll just give you one simple example. Could you tell them to send me ice cream out? <laughs> she's running out, she's running out of stuff over here. Keep my eye on, one eye on the ice cream, one eye over here. Anyway, I'll give you a proof like this. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply yourselves. 
famous story in the Torah that we all know and love is the story of the Akedah. So Abraham Abin, who's, uh, uh, what, he's uh, uh, 137 years old. Yitzhak is no kid, he's 37, Yitzhak Abinu. Come, come my son, we're going. Very quickly Yitzhak realizes that there's a, a big knife, there's wood, there's a mezbeah. So he asks his father, Dad, where's the korban? Abraham winks to his son and says, you're the korban. I'm the korban. Now, if I was Yitzhak Abinu, again, no disrespect, but if I'm Yitzhak Abinu, I say to my father, just excuse me for a minute, I have to go to the... Uh, I run for my life. Run, say, run. The guy's going to kill me. Guy's gonna kill me. And you call, you call child services. The guy's got a knife. He's going to kill me. At 137 years old, you got a little... Uh, you know, no, no, no. I run, run for my life. Or I would tell the, I would tell that I said, Dad, but then you, Abraham said, no, but God told me to do it. I said, I have no doubt, but I think you got the wrong guy. Let's do it to Yishmael. <laughs> I'll help you. I'll help you. We'll put Yishmael on the Mizbeh. We'll make a shawarma out of the guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm the good guy. I'm the good guy. I'm, I'm Sanaskin. Not I got kid. But Yitzhak Avinu, incredible reaction. Oh, I'm the Korban? Oh, Dad, just one request. I'm human, so tie me down tight because I don't want to jolt and make the Qurban invalid. That's why it's called the event Akedat Yitzhak. Akedat Yitzhak means the binding. God never told Abraham to bind Yitzhak. That was Yitzhak's idea. Bind me so I don't make the Qurban invalid. Now everybody has talked about this story from here to tomorrow. I have one question as a parent. And my question as a parent is, how did Avraham raise a child that is so obedient that when he tells him, <laughs> we're going to take you as a Qurban to God, and Yitzhak says, yes, daddy. I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about my own kids. I can't get them to do much less than that without putting up all uh, a bribe and an allowance raise and uh, stay up there. Got to give him the whole kitchen sink just to get me a, get me a, a cock and a cup of coffee. <laughs> and here, Yitzhak is willing to die for nothing. No problem. I'm not asking for nothing. Tie me tight. It's only request. How did Avraham, as a parent, get a child like that? Simple question. I have the answer. I know exactly the answer. If Avraham's Friday night table is like our Friday night table, we tell stories. When I used to sit by my grandfather, I'll have a Shalom Joe Safdi deal. Friday nights were the best. My grandfather would tell us stories about the war, about what he did when he was young, and the old community stories of Megan David of 67, old, old stories and what they did, what the old time, and we just eat it up. And then tell stories about himself, his sacrifices for Torah and religion, and it made a big impact on us. Somebody he respect telling us stories about himself. I have no doubt Abraham Abinu, Friday night table, Small tables, Abraham, Sarah, Yitzhak, he also probably had a lot of guests, Hachnasat, he was very hospitable. So, probably one Friday night, or more, Yitzhak Abinu tells his father, Daddy, tell me some stories when you were young. I was like, eh, you know all my stories already. Which one you want to hear? The one when they threw you into the fire. I told you that one a hundred times. No, no, tell me again, I love that story. So Abraham says, well, listen, there was a guy in the Mirod, he was a wise guy. I was the only religious guy in the neighborhood. I was telling everybody there's God. And this guy, Nimrod, he was against me. 
And one time I was walking down the street and the road caught me and said, Oh, there's that religious guy, Abraham Abinu. I'm going to get him. And Nimrod had an army, he was a powerful guy. So Nimrod comes to me and tells me, Listen, I want you to deny God. Well, if I, you're going to deny God, you got to give me an alternative. Who's God then? Nimrod says, I'm God. Abraham says, I have no problem. If you're God, all I ask you is tomorrow morning, instead of the sun rising in the east, let the sun rise in the west. If you can do that tomorrow morning, I'm in. I'll be, afraid. I'll be the biggest Hasid. And Nimrod knows he didn't create the world and he didn't create the sun and he can't control the direction and the cycle of the sun. So Nimrod tells Abraham, don't be a wise guy. He built a big fire and he tells him, if you don't accept or deny God and your values, I'm throwing you into the fire. Now Yitzhak's looking at his father. And then what happened, Dad? I didn't think twice. For God, we give up our lives. And the Nimrod picked me up and he threw me into the fire. Daddy, did you know you were going to survive? Of course not. How could you survive a fire? I expected to be pulverized into ashes. But Daddy, you're not ashes. Hashem did a miracle for me, but I didn't expect it. Our values are so important to us in this family, we die. Even for our values. That's a story he told about himself. Sadai man who probably chimed in and said, Oh, I remember when he came home, his suit smelled like smoke. I said, Wait, why are you? Don't ask. <laughs> Don't ask what they did to me today. They, they threw me into a fire. They had to clean his suit off. <laughs> now, these are the stories Yitzhak is hearing about his father. And he's being brought up not only with stories, hot facts. And he probably saw the sacrifice that his father made for religion. So now, when it comes his chance, He's been brought up with this his whole life. <clears throat> and therefore, when now Yitzhak Avinu is told to do it, Avram as a parent is probably saying at this point, here is the test if I succeeded or not. Was I able to not fulfill Peru? Was I able to fulfill Urvu? If Yitzhak Avinu says, no way, Avram Avinu says, I didn't do it. I wasn't able to duplicate myself. He was waiting for Yitzhak's response. Now listen how elegant what I'm going to tell you now. After the Akedai puts him on the Mizbeah, Yitzhak passed the test, Avram passed the test. He's about to put the knife to his head. God calls him from the heaven. And what does God say? Abraham, Abraham. He calls him twice. And I ask the question, why does he have to call him twice? Say, Abraham. You know what the explanation is? God was saying, before the Akedai, there was one Abraham in the world. Now, Abraham, Abraham, there's two Abrahams in the world. You succeeded to duplicate yourself in your children. Abraham, Abraham, you succeeded as a parent. How elegant is that? That's the double Abraham, Abraham. Not only did you do Peru, but you did Urvu. And you trained your child to do the impossible. Because he saw it in you and Sarah. He saw that religion and Torah was something willing to sacrifice. He saw the parent, and therefore when it came his moment to shine, he rose to the occasion. There's not one Abraham in the world now. There's two Abrahams. Yitzhak is another Abraham. He's a chip off the old block. Now I saw this. That's my bedtime. I'll just give you one more. One more story. We should do this more often, get together with parents. You know, I spent my whole life teaching children. 
But I think we have to spend more time sitting with the parents just to give them these pep talks. And then our teachers will have such an easy time in the classroom. But it goes so much easier. But I think we're working backwards. We're putting too much time in the kids and we neglect the parents. Our parents are neglected. There's nothing to talk about. This is where the Abuda has to be. And then it'll be a walk in the park for the kids. One more story. I saw my own eyes. It's a story that it, it takes 10 years to explain. In my life, but I'll say it, in, 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 it happened over the course of 10 years, but it's a two-minute story. In 1981, um, me and my friends spent the summer in Israel. And we went touring up and down all over the place. And we went to visit great rabbis as well. One of the rabbis that we went to visit was a rabbi called the Stipler Rabbi. Stipler Rabbi was the father of Chaim Kanievsky. Now, you walk into the Stipler Rabbi, it's like walking into the Holy of Holies. Man was a very, very pious, old wrinkles, and his eyebrows were all covering it. Like when you look, he had to lift his eyebrows to look at you like that. It's a very, 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 uh, I would say intimidating, but big rabbi. And we were scared, we're kids, we're kids, we're back in David kids. We just graduated back in David. We're in high school now, there was no high school at the time. We're regular kids coming with our short sleeves, our dungarees, we're walking in to see the rabbi. And now... It shows you how dated I am, not really, uh, whatever they call it today. I haven't worn them since. But the point is, so we go into the stipler rabbi, and he gives us blessing, and then he says, no, then we say, we want to, he has a book. He has a book to sell. On Gemara. We said, oh, we want to buy the book. So he says, okay, his, his shamosh there says, it's 10 shekel. We didn't have shekel, we had American dollars. So we figured it out, okay, $3, that's about the exchange. Read out, we buy the book. He takes the money, he, he couldn't see something. He takes, I remember he took to the money to make sure. He like, oh, okay, he gives us the book. Yudi, we're very happy. We bought the book from the stipend. I still have the book. And I always brag, I bought it from the author himself. Big thing. We're leaving. As we're leaving, the stipend's wife comes running out. Yeladim, Yeladim. We got caught now. You know, once you leave the principal's office, that's it, you escaped, you're out. Now maybe he saw something, maybe he's going to come back and say, hey, you're making it at all, that's good. He says, the rabbi said that maybe the shekem fluctuated from the time you came from Jerusalem to Bnei Berak and you gave him extra money, so he wants you to forgive him, please. He doesn't want to take anything extra. Now, we didn't understand what we fluctuate, shekem. So we turned to the rabbi, what is she talking about? Well, you gave her three dollars. Three dollars is ten shekel, but if the if it fluctuated, maybe three dollars now is eleven shekel, and he doesn't want to take the extra money, so he wants you to just tell him, forgive him if he took anything extra. I turned to the rabbi. I says, does the shekel fluctuate in a half hour from Jerusalem? Probably not. And it fluctuates. It probably fluctuates a quarter of a penny. I said, this lady is running out. And the rabbi's worried that he might have taken a quarter penny extra. We're happy to give it to him. No, she doesn't want to take. So we said, wow, talk about honesty. Talk about honesty. That's the first story. Made a big impression that the rabbi was concerned. That's $3. So the most he could be robbing from us is $3. Now the book costs something. <laughs> so what did he take? A penny? Ten years later, me and my friends now were learning in Israel. Stipler had passed away. We go visit Rafkaim Kanievsky. I remember the day like it was yesterday. We walk up to his, his house, Rahob Rashbam, knock on the door, walk in. 
gives us blessings. Rabbi, we want to buy a book. All right, inflation, now it's 20 shekel. Pay the rabbi dollars, get the book. Thank you, rabbi, we're all excited. We leave. Not 30 seconds, Rav Chaim's wife comes running out. We looked at each other. Before she opened her mouth, me and my friend says, this is going to be the biggest deja vu you ever saw in your life. You know deja vu? We knew what she was going to say before she said it. She says, the rabbi said, if the shekel fluctuates, oh, I remember this voice. Ten years ago. And I said to myself, where does Rav Chaim Kanievsky get such a level of honesty? Because he saw it in his father. Stipler set the level of honesty, and that's it. We don't take, some families say, for $100, you lie. For $100, you sketch. That's worth it already. And the stipler taught his kids, for a penny, we run down the block to say, please forgive us. And that's why the child had the same values. It's Abraham, Abraham. And that's my lesson tonight. God's temple was destroyed, not because of Bar Kamsa only. Because Kamsa, the father, was delinquent. And when there's a delinquent father or mother, it's going to trickle down to the child, and God's house was destroyed. It's the time that we celebrate or commemorate the destruction of God's house. We must commit ourselves to the rebuilding of our own Jewish homes. Dear parents, I looked at my job description. What is I don't even know what I'm supposed to do exactly. I don't think most principals know. Rabbinical advisor. It's such a vague thing. It's on purpose. A dentist knows what he's supposed to do. A dentist has one name. But when you try to figure out somebody that runs a school, he could be a headmaster, a principal, a dean. They call me rabbinical advisor. What does that show you? That nobody knows what this guy's supposed to do. <laughs> You have 20 names to describe a job that nobody really knows, what, including me. What, what exactly is my job exactly? They give me a contract, make sure you do this. Who knows what? Is that, that the job? What I understand my job to be is very simple. It's to create a spirit in the school which is an optimistic and healthy spirit of good happiness, subha, and positivity, and then to become the best role model for our children. And to make sure that all our teachers are proper role models. We're on the center stage. Our children only have four years of watching us. And therefore, I'm not raising children. I have to raise myself to make sure that I'm on good behavior for four years. So your children will see a rabbi make a berachah properly, a rabbi pray properly, because they're looking. And the way I behave, that's going to be the And I need backing. I'm only one guy. They see me a few hours a day. I commit myself to be the best rabbi man that I can be, as best as I can. I'm willing to raise myself for your children. But I cannot be undercut and sold short if when they go home, they're going to see a conflict we missing. Let's make a commitment amongst ourselves tonight that together we commit not to raise children so much, but to raise ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.